Well, hello, hello, dear listener, and welcome back to a new episode of our podcast, which is no more civis pacem. It bears different name, which I present to you and explain slightly later. But for now, I want to say a few words about our decision to continue with this podcast and the main reason behind it. So, our last recording took place uh, in summer of 2021. So, as you can see, it's been a while since our last recording. However, uh, we've decided to come back and to come back not just with new episodes, but with a completely new perspective uh, on international relations in order to um, in order to collectively attempt to rethink uh, world politics and uh, contemporary events. And in this new season of our podcast, we will focus not solely on classical security issues and concerns on transatlantic security as we did during the last season, but we will try to look uh, at international relations from a more human-centric perspective or contemporary challenges, not just international relations. And by human-centric perspective, I mean our desire to understand why people tend to think about world politics this and this, this or that way. In other words, how their ideas, their arguments connect to what they're doing, their profession, uh, and just their life in general. And the main reason why we've decided to change the perspective into more human-oriented approach to uh, international relations in this podcast is because it becomes more and more complicated to talk about international relations in a neutral and unbiased fashion. Uh, whenever your argument is, you will be associated with this or that camp because of the tendency to view events in a black and white fashion. And on top of that black and white thinking, um, international relations as an academic discipline leans towards this uh, kind of universalism, uh, trying to explain all these different phenomena by certain universal arguments uh, and undisputable arguments and universal values and so on and so forth. And in our opinion, this uh, insistence on universality on uh, certain the set of indisputable beliefs um, prevents uh, us from finding new solutions to contemporary problems and contemporary conflicts. And this insistence on universality and on kind of like this uh, black and white thinking uh, leads to uh, the crisis of uh, uh, international relations as a discipline in general, which in recent years has become more politicized. Uh, it leans towards this American perspective on the world and it leaves uh, very little room for different opinions and ideas. And this exactly leads to actually uh, a name of our podcast and the whole concept behind uh, the new season of our podcast, which will have a name uh, Panoramas of the Local Globe, uh, which basically signifies this idea that no matter how um, global your thinking is or how uh, universal your ideas are, they at every given point in time remain local and they cannot really transcend this locality because uh, the whole human experience is uh, uh, local. 
So I hope you enjoy this uh, first episode of our new season where we discuss with Vava uh, how uh, the crisis in international relations as a discipline reflects uh, uh, the second contemporary security crisis in the world. So if you enjoy our channel, please uh, uh, like it uh, and share it with your friends. So we are rolling. Um, hello, hello. Hello to everyone and welcome to the new season. New iteration. New iteration of uh, this wonderful podcast. Uh, and it's such a nice time to, 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 to be back. It's been a while and I think it's about time. Yes, uh, especially given all the current events going on in the world. Yep, we um, have been away for a while and look what happened. Like we leave, we leave them for a while by themselves and suddenly the world... Yes. Those nuts. <laughs> well, yes, exactly. And our last episode actually was about uh, Ukraine. Oh, was it actually? I don't remember. Yes. <laughs> uh, but, you know, uh, we predicted everything back then. <laughs> well, kudos to us. <laughs> yes, at least we brought awareness to the topic. Uh, well, to be, to be frank, it was also pretty popular back then. But now it's a pretty big deal. And uh, I guess we are back with this podcast to, you know, bring new perspectives Indeed. to rethink the way actually we think about international politics um, and yeah I guess like my, my main point would be that international relations you know as a discipline you can think about broadly as a way of thinking about the world is in big crisis and I would really argue maybe connecting the, the crisis of the discipline kind of like reflects uh, the crisis in international relations itself like mm -hmm. yeah. because Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it's no matter like who is right or wrong in this conflict. I mean, there is still war over there. There's still like suffering, people dying, and it's a conflict. I mean, yeah, and the goal of this discipline, well, we can argue if it's actually a scientific discipline, but let's say it is. If it's a scientific discipline, its goal, like of every science, should be to help people, and I suppose in this case, it should be. Uh, helping people to avoid conflict yes. and to avoid such suffering, yes. which it has certainly failed. Yes, exactly. And uh, and yeah, it was created after, I guess, First World War. Yes, in Britain and in generally in like uh, Western Western society to exactly to avoid war. And the whole study of international relations is about avoiding war. But uh, now it seems it's more or less like fits this like Western propaganda paradigm. And uh, like it's very, I would even say, not Western-centric, but American-centric. Well, the discipline was kind of born in the U.S. Like the mm -hmm. first universities that actually had a PhD spots in the discipline were all in the U.S. Yes. So I think it's pretty, uh, pretty normal that that's the center, center, uh, central part of the discipline. And well, still, every like most IR scholars that are let's say, globally known, they're from the U.S. If you have somebody from France who does IR, he'll only be known in France. If you have somebody who does IR in Russia, they will only be known in Russia. Like, the Americans are the ones who... That's true, but it, it, it doesn't mean necessarily that they're better at uh, theorizing international relations or better at... Uh, and it just, you just can check uh, the amount of uh, like literature and journals and most of the articles, most of the thinking is about the U.S., like, Yeah, and uh, the thing with American School of International Relations is that it's very heavily theory-based. So, uh, like, I have comparison, I know many people who study IR in Poland, 
um, and you have yourself studied the discipline in Russia, and I think it's taught differently, uh, like from what I've heard uh, from my friends. In Poland, they mostly teach you about, well, the world. They want you to know, uh, they want you to know the capital of every city. They want you to know who the president is where. They want you to know which international organizations there are, which. Uh, which inter, uh, organizations do what, of which inter organization Poland is a member, like what is the diplomatic protocol, how do you resolve international disputes, what courts there are. And from my experience taking IR courses in America, it was basically, okay, listen here, mm -hmm. man, this is a theory and explains everything. <laughs> here, let me show you my newest book. It explains how the entirety of the world works. Uh, yes. And if you disagree, well, um, too bad. Yeah, I guess this is positive. Is just generalizations. Like the whole the whole concept that you first have some general generalization. You have some big theory in this theory, and then you kind of like you, you can see the bias here. Then you try to fit all your cases to this theory. You don't go through cases, but you go through generalizations to the cases, kind of yes, trying exactly. to fit them your theory. And that's, um, that's the problem yeah. with many social sciences, also with uh, economy. Uh, it's so hard to study societies. There are so many variables that if you decide to, well, I will, this variable is not important, so I will not include this in my analysis. You have to simplify. And at one point, you simplify so much that you kind of don't get a really realistic image of reality. Yes, exactly. And I guess uh, even now during this crisis, it's pretty obvious because the main like, dominant, I would say, narrative is like this democracy versus autocracy. This is very prevalent narrative. And it's kind of easy because it's so, so general. Like, you know, you can really think about... You can explain everything through this idea, like, you know, if something is bad, uh, then it's because it's autocracy. If something is good, it's because of democracy, even though I guess so many details. And I, I think about democracy is something like, a, it's not like if I have full or not full democracy, there's always a gradient to, to this, like it couldn't really be fully democratic or fully undemocratic. Um, every democracy is different, so to speak. Uh, it's also filled with cultural, institutional, I don't know, history. So it's not that easy, so to speak. And I guess, I guess yes, I guess IR is a discipline uh, should be about like this. Uh, it should spark your desire to actually learn about cultures. Mm -hmm. um, I guess the best way probably to achieve is by learning languages. I agree. Um, yes. But I guess not only. I guess and and we can also discuss the fact that diplomacy is also in crisis. Like, Surprisingly. <laughs> well, yeah, it's not a good time for diplomats, for sure. Yes. Um, and I guess from American perspective, diplomacy simply doesn't work that well. Because, I mean, uh, I just thought about like how many, like in the last 30 years during like this, uh, the time of American hegemony, how many conflicts were actually solved diplomatically. I mean, but basically very, I mean, probably there was some agreements between Israel and uh, Palestine because of Americans, but that's about it. Like, but then again, like looking overall at the historical record, how many conflicts were solved peacefully? Not many. Uh, true, but uh, then you have such a big power in, in who's, uh, who could solve potentially conflicts peacefully. Because yes, that's, 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 the, that's the thing. Like, if there were conflicts solved peacefully, you had some form of hegemon, so somebody who is stronger than everybody else who would intervene and settle the dispute. And well, up to up to recently, uh, the U.S. was this kind of hegemon, mm -hmm. and I suppose they tried to perform this role, but um, in a pretty unsuccessful way. 
Uh, but then my point would be that they really did not. Like, instead of like trying to, to solve problems peacefully, they tried to solve problems just with, with power. military might, yes. Yeah, whether it's Iraq, whether it's... Uh, I mean, basically every conflict that they're involved, uh, they have like an enemy. The idea is uh, to wait. I mean, in the Russian case, I guess the strategy is really either to topple regime, as you call it, regime, or, I, I don't know, or just like, conflict, or just, like open confrontation. Uh, and with China as well. I mean, and there is no kind of anything in between just because the regular whole like propaganda machine is working so hard to, you know, to, to show that uh, Putin is evil, Russia is evil, um, and we cannot never cooperate with them mm-hmm. or something like this. Um, yeah, and I guess that's here, here comes the problem because, uh, you know, when diplomats go somewhere, they go with this, uh, quite literally from an anthropological perspective, they go with the position to prove that they are right and everyone else is wrong, kind of. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then, of course, it's a lot of, like, money poured into propaganda, into, like, creating this narrative, uh, and mobilization of the West. Uh, uh, and it's easy to just fall into this trap, like, you know, it's... Uh, it's very confronting you, so to speak, that gives you like a lot of comfort, so to speak, just like to live in your kind of quite literally bubble. Yeah, and I think um, also from my uh, experience studying in the in the U.S., like they would never say this clearly, but you could hear that the teachers and professors they were convinced that they are in a way superior to others. Yeah. Like it, it wouldn't wouldn't necessarily mean that they're necessarily smarter or elected by God, but for example, they would say, "Hey, actually, you know, we are the best at solving conflicts because we have the biggest military, and yeah, we we have we have our allies in Europe, but they kind of suck. They can't do anything. They have super small militaries. They do not spend two percent of GDP for defense. Like they're just they're just useless. Like we're basically defending them, and since we are we're so you know powerful and mighty." Like we're the ones who should solve all global problems, yeah. um, and okay, you can think this way. You can think this way, but um, then why don't you? <laughs> That's American exceptionalism, right? But I it mean, is. It's a reiteration of American exceptionalism for sure. Yeah, but but this is also, I guess, uh, just uh, American way of looking at the world from on top of the hill. Yep. Um, and you can see so many manifestations and also like the way they leave, like everyone else should leave. I mean, I, I think they pretty much think this way. Yep. Um, but they are very ignorant because, I mean, they simply leave without any, without bothering anyone. Yeah, I can think like, true. where do they go? I mean, it's not like America only maybe very intellectually refined Americans go to Europe, but this is kind of different kind of Americans. like you know. Yeah, yeah. but that's also like... Mm, I'll be like the devil's advocate here. Like Europeans like to make fun of Americans like, oh yeah, you only speak English and no other language and you never travel outside the US. But then again, we have the privilege of living in Europe, which is a multilingual continent. You can basically travel 100 kilometers and be in a different country. Mm -hmm. Uh, This doesn't exist in America. And when you sort of like change the perspective and say, when you ask a common European, hey, have you actually been outside of Europe? Many will say no, I haven't. But I have been abroad. I've been to Spain. I've been to Italy. I've been to uh, I've been to Germany. And a trip for me, a trip for me to Italy, it's the same as a trip from for somebody from Illinois to Florida. It's basically the same. So they're kind of suffering from their own, you know, might. That they're they're so big that it's hard for them to actually gain different perspectives. It's like not different perspectives are not so available to them because they're a one state that's kind of 
secluded from other nations. That's true. And that's what also makes them very secure. And yeah, uh, like from a national security perspective, it's impossible to like conquer, conquer. the US. Exactly. Um, well, yes, but uh, here we are, I guess, <laughs> um, are. Uh, with another um, conflict. And I mean, it seems like the amount of conflicts will only increase. So, like the, this moment of unipolarity, which wasn't really peaceful, to be honest. I mean, it was pretty damn unpeaceful moment. That depends uh, how you define peaceful. Uh, in terms of there were wars, there was suffering, there was conflict, uh, open military conflicts between nations. There was. Um, yeah, I mean, of course, statistically speaking, you can like check how many people died like through through this time, and it would be slightly, it's a, of course, less than during the Cold War. But nevertheless, there will many more. Uh, there will exceed for peaceful change, so to speak. Like you know, there were no no like nothing to to really fight against, and there was of course like the climate change, which Americans never really. I mean, they're still not really involved in climate change. Uh, uh, well, they re-entered the Paris Accords. Yeah, they re-entered, but we all know that it's very unstable because uh, uh, Chinese will never trust Americans. Uh, and why would Chinese do anything if Americans don't do anything? And I mean, this comes to the point when something like Americans try to portray themselves as uh, like basically the nation that trans the whole world, like because because they they really want to be perceived this way. Yeah. But when something bad is happening, suddenly it's not the Americans who you to blame. Like you know, yes. you blame another party and this is like a paradox because either you take responsibility for the world and like you know if like there is a conflict for example not just ukraine but with problem with iran you either take responsibility and kind of like you are entirely responsible for what's happening in iran or for the crisis in relationships or you try to be portrayed as a um yeah or Oh, you know, you, you blame another party and then you kind of continue basically confrontational dynamic in the world. Yeah. Um, but I, my perspective would be, of course, there is, there is no... Like, the black and white vision that there is one side to blame is always false because, I mean, it's always like comes from, from the another party, so to speak. It's always... Um, like any conflict is way much more complicated. I mean, you can even go back to like World War II and you say like, well, yes, I mean... I, like now people discussing a lot that there is no way you can uh, justify Russian aggression. Uh, but of course, if you go back even to the Hitler period of time, and of course you can make an argument that Hitler came to power for nothing. I mean, the country was heavily humiliated. I mean, if it, if it wasn't for such a crazy guy as Hitler, there would be definitely some German revanchism. Eventually. Yes, definitely. This is, um, this is something that I think IR lacks, which is a little bit more focus on actual case studies like myself uh myself um, being a historian in the making this is what i like about history because history can explain specific events quite well because it's a basically every history book is a case study and you can make an argument this happened because of x and y because you can actually trace the chain of events you can you don't have to simplify of course you have to simplify but you don't include every single event in the narrative but you don't have to simplify as much as when you're creating a uh, an ir theory yeah. you basically tell a story and um then when you tell a story as a historian, then an IR scholar comes, he takes your book, he codes your book like, okay, World War II, this was a, I don't know, racist war or whatever. That's an arbitrary coding. And they make an argument, hey, like most wars in the 20th century were because, I don't know, because of racial prejudice. Okay. 
yeah, I guess uh, they do lack, and that's why you also see this kind of like people from IR, and you also see people like throughout this conflict, they they really have like these strong assumptions about what why is like happening. Like, uh, I mean, in terms of like Russia. Ukraine, that would be like you know there is uh, like uh, no justification. It's 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 one thing, but they also would be well. Like Ukraine has nothing to do with this war. I mean, Ukraine is just a victim. Like you know, there is no way. Uh, but in then you completely like you know you completely become so to speak deaf to other people's opinion. You're never going to listen to what Russia has to say about this. And I mean, the same happens not just in the media. The same happens probably with diplomats who just go and like you know Russians going to say like look. I don't know, like, you know, they're like those and this, like types of military weapons that we won't allow uh, near our borders. But of course, they, they will be deaf. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a dictator tells us something that we don't want to hear. Like, I mean, it, he's just a dictator and he's just a bluffing and he just, he's creating some narrative. I mean, but how can you really differentiate between, like, uh, whether, like, he really tells you some narrative, like, made up story or he really tries to convey you, has a position, so to speak, to make? Yeah, and I mean, of course, uh, in this crisis, it's just probably the beginning because there will be very much more nastier crisis between China and uh, and US over Taiwan, over South China Sea. Uh, and I think I would really strongly argue that if like the West wasn't able to solve problems with Russia, which is still a European country, people thinking like like linguistically, culturally, yeah, they're on the same page. Culturally, Russia is way closer with the US. That's yes, right. um, they are on the same page, but like China is completely total different country, and actually with way stronger narrative that it was humiliated during the colonialism, mm-hmm, the with, century of humiliation. Yes, with way stronger narrative that you know, f u Americans. Exactly. Uh, yeah, and the down ten years, like twenty years down the road, we will we'll live, I guess, through like really conflict and through like very. Um, yeah, I guess just the time of turbulence, the time of... Yeah, and I think that's a very nice point that you make about like China being from a completely, well, let's say different planet because, um, for example, this is an example. Russia is integrated in a way in the conventional Western international system. Like Russia mm-hmm. respects many of the rules that are established in the international system, like the Western international system, and China doesn't. For example, Russia accepts the European rule of the freedom of open seas, like you can navigate the seas openly. China doesn't. China believes that the entire South China Sea is their territorial waters. And they don't care that the, any international court rules against that because mm-hmm. they just don't believe it's legitimate. Yeah. yeah. I mean, same would be for Russia in terms of uh, cases. Uh, there's like just the lack of, uh, from going to great powers, you can see the lack of uh, trust to institutions. Yes. Because, of course, there is a bias that, you know, you know who runs the institutions and like why. Like, I mean, with the Russian case, I don't remember with the exact case, but like judges were Americans when they made this verdict against like Russia, for example. But Russia isn't like, like this. Russia isn't necessarily against those institutions actually existing. They're like, they just say, oh, this, this institution is just controlled by the Americans. They wouldn't necessarily be against it uh, existing. Thing. And China clearly like rejects those institutions. Okay. They reject the institution of the freedom of the of traveling open seas because they don't believe it's legitimate. They believe that yeah. they were uh, forced to respect it and they I didn't mean, have a say. And decision made when basically they were very weak. Exactly, and China had no say in the system. China had to say kind of yes to it back then just because it has no had no kind of capability to. Yeah. 
to reject it. Um, yes, and and this is, uh, and I mean, and then the conflict between the U.S. and China it will different kind of type of conflict. It will be kind of type of conflict between peer competitors, as they call, mm-hmm. because of course now there's, uh, yeah, Russia is is uh, not compared to the U.S. Yes. Um, and it's also like from many many perspectives, Russian behavior is uh, uh, like irrational in the sense that they really care about security. And you can see how much like they ready to pay in terms of economic losses. And like just just like from human perspective, I mean those decisions are really tough. But I mean they still tell you something about how Russian security apparatus thinks, so to speak. They, they yes, really, exactly. Uh, want to pay those costs for for. And exactly, because if we apply a Western theory of IR to Russia's actions right now, it doesn't make any sense. Because like from a, our like Western perspective, did Russia's security increase with this war? If we follow like the classical, I know, let's say IR theories, yeah. uh, right now you can uh, you can for example assume the realist perspective and say, okay, this wasn't really good because now more countries will be balancing against Russia, like Finland wanting to join NATO, for example. So did it really help? Not really. But see, this is why we need to like study Russia, do the case study of Russia to understand how they yeah. think, how they understand international security, how they might make decisions. Yeah. But yeah, again, but you know, most Westerners they are just completely deaf. I mean, and I don't think that many Americans who actually are eager to study Russian, not not to say like eager to read like documents and listen to Putin's speeches, not perspective. Oh, hey, that's dictator speaking again. Yeah. But like, hey, like this is like a guy who really knows stuff about world politics. He definitely knows better than you. So, be, like, if you want to like know about world politics and understand it, you should kind of listen to what he has to say. I mean, you do not necessarily need to agree with him, but I mean, at least like take account of like what what are his arguments. I mean, and even if you consider him an enemy and you want to counter him, it's still beneficial for you to listen to what he <laughs> exactly. has to say. Exactly. Yeah, but this is um, uh, this is like I guess the problem of the West. And in terms of for me, I, I I do think a lot about this idea. But like, what's the point of time that the West turned from like you know colonial, ruthless? I mean, colonial ruthless nation states that like you know try to conquer the world throughout the history into like those peaceful, nice guys. Like, you know, like, like what's, what's the exact like moment in history. And this happened that like, you know, like nations that like, I mean, of course they brought like civilization and like, uh, uh, economy and prosperity, but they also brought so many bad things to, to, to the world. If you want a specific date, I would say 1959, the Suez crisis. 1959. So you think like, uh, but then there was, of course, like, you know, you could think about there was a war, uh, the French-Algerian war. There was, I mean, there were still conflicts, uh, colonial conflicts uh, in the West. And I guess, like, well, my point just to be, like, why, why, why do they teach the world how to live if they're definitely not the, you know, the, the nicest guy throughout the history, so to speak? I mean, Europeans, such as French or Spanish or... Uh, the British, they did pretty much the same thing that the Americans are doing, which is, hey, we are the most powerful militarily, so we are the ones to dictate how the world's where world should yeah. work like and what your values should be. So yeah, it's the same thing. Yeah, and I guess if we if we come to Europe, I guess the whole problem of Europe that it has no. I mean, it definitely the only way it sees now itself is just to be like really like people like pe- pejoratively would say the colony of the of the of the US, 
But it's true in the sense of like, you know, when the US does something really opposing to Western, like, you know, European like national security interests, like withdrawal from Afghanistan, like, from NATO, NATO perspective. Um, I mean, they all object this decision, but they, of course, do simply, they cannot, they have no instruments because if US was something to do and like no one is on board but the US, I mean, it will still make a decision and it will drag everyone into the decision in terms of. NATO. Well, that's because the U.S. provides security for the entirety yeah. of Europe. So if you don't want to spend 2% of GDP on your military, you have to listen to what Americans are going to say. Exactly. I guess and this is the point that, I guess, like in, from European perspective, because uh, like how do I, I define, like Europe is really like a block of flats. And like, you know, it's, it's like, and Russia is also, <laughs> unfortunately or fortunately, I mean, it's also part of this block of flats. I mean, you couldn't really... Uh, differentiate because the Russia is, is definitely I mean it's geographically in the in the in the Europe it's yeah, the yes this historically in the Europe but of course the US is just like you know it's like an, it's it's like a mention on the other side of the bank like I mean and they, of course in their perspective on how people should live in the block of flats is like you know like the basic perspective perspective well perspective of a landlord yeah, I don't really caring. Like, I, I mean, and from a European perspective, like, you should really kind of attempt to solve problems with Russia. I guess, like, well, this would be some like a French maybe argument right now, because and there is no other way. Like, and how many more like decades of confrontation you want? Like, ten years, twenty years, thirty years, until it's World War Three or something like this, of course. Um, and that's the problem. Like, I mean, like, what's the price the West is ready to pay to Russia, even if it just stops the war, for example? It completely, I know, surrenders, goes to back to 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 furious borders. But like, what's even in this paradigm? What's the place of Russia in your perspective? Would you like? What would would you do? What like? Would you really have a course like to integrate Russia to, like, for example, European Union? But of course, no one really wants Russia to be a prosperous nation because we know why. Because there is a kind of like a definitely opinion that if Russia is prosperous. It's against, like you know, national interest of the Americans, so to speak. Um, maybe European as well. I mean, the, but you know, here's it. here's an idea. Um, you know, there were ideas after the Cold War that democracy has won and stuff. Uh, there was still China, a communist regime, a very totalitarian communist regime, but everybody believed that eventually if we trade with China, China will get more prosperous, they will turn to democracy as well, and there will be no problem. And this didn't work. China is still a totalitarian state, which is now, well, wants to revise the American-led world order. So maybe the Americans are thinking right now, okay... We failed with integrating China. Like we wanted to give like trade with them, allow their companies to invest in our countries and stuff. And this didn't do a goddamn thing. And we actually created a monster, which is a threat to us right now. Maybe right now they're thinking, okay, this didn't work. Let's let's do violence instead. Um, yes, I guess it's true, but it's also like the decision why they made it wasn't because uh, they wanted China to be democratic, but because they wanted to rebel in Soviet Union. I guess what was, I mean, there was famous uh, Kissinger trip. Yep. And I mean, of course, like in the future, like I probably uh, many scholars would argue that there would be the moment like this when there will be like real conflict between China and um, US because uh, they, they simply need like Russia on, on board just to rebalance. And if they want to have also more or less, uh, just like from a military perspective, not to spend as much in Europe. 
and to uh, uh, to spend all the all the resources that they have on Chinese kind of from, um, maybe. But I mean, um, uh, but of course, like uh, in in a Russian case, I mean the, the period from still nineties and zeros. I mean, Russia was still considered to be like a democracy, like you know. Yes. And he didn't have anything against, I guess, like the main, like the strong Russian argument that uh, West never wanted to, Russia to really integrate, so it kept it like on its position as as a, as a basically a place where they could get like free energy, like very cheap energy. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't really serious about like uh, basically turning Russia into prosperous Western nation, which is which has big potential if you think. It's still a nation that could be potentially way much stronger than Germany, economically, Absolutely. just because it has very many more people, it has a big land, natural, um, resources. natural resources. So it could potentially, and it still has a potential, because, I mean, it's one thing, like, in what kind of shit conditions Russian economy is now, but potential, can potential, like, it's still very, can be a big and prosperous nation. But... Of course, now it's uh, very... <laughs> yeah, uh, probably not, not in the nearest decade. <laughs> yeah, not in the nearest two or three decades. I mean, until uh, uh, it's like heavily given money from Chinese side uh, in case of some conflict or whatever. So, you know, like we're discussing the problems of the American-led discipline of international relations, but what is the solution <laughs> to the problems? Well, I guess the solution to the problem is to have uh, new perspectives and, of course, to have uh, just people thinking, like quite literally thinking in different ways. I mean, there is no, of course, like clear answer to this, but if you have like different people bringing new perspective and trying to, to see, not just from American school of thought or just trying to look at Americans critically, um, then, of course, they could be some solutions in a sense like for example we talk about diplomacy i mean i think like diplomacy should be really about like when a diplomat goes and like the first task of the diplomat is of course you like you protect your like kind of like interests of your country but you are a diplomat because your uh, main task is like to get to know your opponent or your compartment your colloquator so to speak uh, just like to to, to like, why, why does he think like that? Like, I mean, and what ha- can we offer, like, you know, to balance and to, to live together? And it's the same with the climate change. Like, you know, how do you want to solve, like, climate change? Is the only solution to the climate change for now is just, like, you know, like, to dictate how everyone should live. But there cannot be, like, you know, universal rules, so to speak. Yeah. Because, I mean, it all comes down to, comes to like, really local things, like, you know, local politics and, like... Local culture local culture, and you need to be kind of respectful to this. So I guess, like, the whole idea, I mean, you could definitely argue right now there will be the diverse process from uh, universalism, from globalism, it all kind of globalism now, I guess, reached its limits. It also reached its limits, I guess, in the pandemic, because also because U.S. during Trump completely... Basically, he said, if you do the world, you're going to live the way we want to live. Like, so they basically created the idea of global globalism, and then they dropped it. Yeah. And everyone should have accepted it. Like, otherwise, like, you know, they have no instruments against the United States. So I guess the solution would be to explore ideas from different perspectives. Because, I mean, for me, when you open, like, journals of international relations, I mean, it seems like they have, like, those the same 
the same articles about the same things about which almost like you know copy CNN way of thinking already. Yeah, um, the problem is that when you open any uh, article about international relations, the introduction will say this article uses the theory of uh, I don't know defensive realism, which is. Blah, 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 blah. So, like, the entire premise is based on a theory that already exists and yeah. it's really productive to bring new insight. Yeah, I guess, of course, there is... Uh, uh, I mean, ideally, uh, I think back in, like, down the road, there should be, like, every Ministry of Foreign Affairs should have, like, their own sociologist in, in the department. People maybe who have, like, kind of actually access to empirical data, probably they go to meetings in order maybe to better understand how diplomacy works, like, you know, for example. Yeah, like, you know, some Western countries send diplomats to other countries that don't even know the local language. Yeah. Like, that's a... Com- I mean, I understand if you if you cannot find uh, somebody, a citizen who speaks, I don't know, Estonian, if you're Poland, I understand that. But if you're the... If you're a Canadian sending an ambassador to Germany who doesn't speak German, that's weird. <laughs> Of course it is. And I mean, and from American perspective, I mean, I, I think like the like the quality, I mean, there may be very like intelligent, smart people who know stuff about philosophy and like economy, economics and stuff like this, but it seems like they're very, like, you know, they go to another country from this perspective, I'm on top of the hill and I'm going to teach you how to live and not like interested, I mean, which is like perfectly makes sense from of historical institute historical way of thinking about people who like slaughtered like people who look slightly different. I mean, I mean there was uh, and not like just black people, but also of course uh, Native Americans and stuff like this. And they completely never thought like they they were real people in the sense that you are yes, you are exactly. human being. Yeah, just because they're different, you could do whatever you want with them. Yeah, so I guess that's. Uh, um, but yeah, just just I guess just discussing things and um, bringing new perspectives, uh, just like opening like this conversation about how we really think about stuff, uh, and coming away from any universal ideas that would be my my solution, I guess, to the problem. So what is yours? Yeah, yeah, I agree <laughs> that uh, we should drop this um, perception that there can be a universal truth. Uh, that there can be a theory that explains every single war. Like even if we have a, an IR theory that explains seventy five percent of the cases, mm-hmm. well, twenty five percent that's still a lot. Like there's still potentially millions of people dead if the theory fails. So yeah, my perspective, my idea would be, as I said, case studies. Like you can only understand, you can understand how a country thinks. Not by reading uh, John Mirschheimer, but by learning its history, learning its language, thinking, yeah. oh, maybe the, maybe Russians are so uh, pissed at the US right now because they have been humiliated in the 90s. Maybe that's why they're doing it. It's not because they're following, uh, I don't well, know. I mean, some... in the Russian case, if you just take like the case of Russian-Ukrainian confrontation, this case has history, this case yes. has... You know, I mean, Russian policy was actually very consistent in the, what it was doing. And I mean, it was tracked track back to, of course, the war in Georgia and the Bukhara summit that they just completely said that this is not going to happen, that NATO will come to Ukraine and Georgia. I mean, they yeah. will do everything. Like, And I mean, by everything, I mean, now it's war. It's and, kind of... And, you know, you should, if you want to understand modern Ukraine, you should 
learn about the history of the Russian Revolution, how the Bolsheviks organized the Ukrainian Socialist Republic. Yeah. <laughs> the there were like there were so many state um stay different states in this in this region uh, over the time you had the western ukrainian government and the eastern ukrainian socialist government then there were anarchists there and then uh, the soviets consolidated the, this this socialist republic into one then they added added former regions of poland and then now you might think why is there no conflict if this happened with poland as well why is there no conflict on the ukrainian and polish border why well, because there's no ethnic conflict anymore. All of the yeah. Poles were resettled, so you cannot make the argument that Lvov yeah. is a Polish town anymore because there are no Poles there. Yeah. But this didn't happen in the East. Yeah. The like towns like Kharkiv are Russian-speaking, so Russia yeah. can make this argument. Exactly. But now, I guess, it contributes uh, way more to Ukrainian, uh, I would say, nation-making process. Yes, so this is also like from a historical perspective and Polish perspective, I can say this is something that World War II did to Poland before the war. Uh, actually, when there was a census, I think in 1928, like 20% of the people who were Polish-speaking who were asked, what is your nationality? They said local. They mm -hmm. did not feel like members of any national like collective identity. They said, I'm just local. Like, I don't care. I speak Polish. I'm just local. And this, after the war, has changed. It's like a common enemy like consolidated the idea of a nation. Yeah. And this is the same thing that's happening right now in Ukraine. Yeah. Although they probably will take Eastern land. So probably yes. Yeah. And I mean, everyone who wanna, I mean, or like just repel or persecute or people who think differently that they want yeah, them to think. They will probably flee to the west. Yeah, to the west, and yeah, um, that's true. I mean, that's where we are, where we are now. Um, yep. um, yeah, and I guess like that's. Uh, it's just like one, just the beginning of the of the broader conflict. But I mean, of course, my argument would be at all kind of point the conflict was avoidable, and um, I would say like Europeans, like if they were just for Europeans, even Normandy former, they could solve the problem if it wasn't for Americans who really and quite literally provoked Ukrainians and sold sold them, which basically gave them weapons and <laughs> and stuff like this. I think it could have been avoided, but uh, not in the last ten or even twenty years. I think it should. The grounds, the, like the basis for this conflict was laid right after the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Like, uh, somebody decided, yeah, let's let's let every single republic become independent within the borders that they had within the Soviet Union, mm. which was actually a very bad idea because the Soviet border system was designed with the central Soviet government being in place. And... Uh, nationalities were assigned very arbitrarily to people within this system. And if you were a Russian speaker and you felt Russian and you happened to live in the Ukrainian SSR, you would be counted by the uh, central offices in Moscow as a Ukrainian national. Mm -hmm. But it didn't really matter for you because you still lived in the Soviet Union. If you wanted to move to Moscow, whatever, you can. If you wanted to work across the border in the Russian Socialist Republic, you could. It didn't matter. And suddenly, bam, there's a border and you're Ukrainian. This problem was never addressed and never solved. Yes, I guess that's what Putin called the, the biggest tragedy in terms of Soviet Union dissolution that the so I, many Russians... Yeah, I absolutely agree that the dissolution of the Soviet Union was done very poorly, just like yes. I think decolonization <laughs> was done very poorly. Yes, and there were specific like Azerbaijani-Armenian uh, conflicts specifically. Exactly. Enclaves. Um, Abkhazia, Ossetia, they were all... There were, there were problems that were not addressed at yeah. the moment of the dissolution and they had to be solved on the battlefield. Yes, um, but it happened. Like I mean, the whole process, of course, happened so fast. And uh, yes, exactly. I mean, happened too fast. In Russia itself, had so many problems. It wasn't really until like 
but of course like the whole idea that you know if if like Russia did not uh, annex you can say take take Crimea that there would be like a NATO base just in Crimea would basically gonna they're gonna take like because they also had like a lease agreement for 60 years that they signed with Yanukovych you know, as well as they did with Russian credits they would say no we're not gonna give you this base back I mean <laughs> Russia probably would say that we wouldn't give you it back yeah. either <laughs> so I mean uh, it's also a little bit uh, from security perspective like Russian border with Ukraine is pretty long and pretty vulnerable yes. um, and yeah like any NATO troops would mean conventionally for Russia if there is a conventional war between like Big, yeah, huge advantage. Um, yeah, I guess that's where we are now. Uh, just, I mean, they, but I mean, I would argue, I guess, coming to your point, that I mean, there was still uh, room for diplomacy, I guess, even from after Crimea, because Crimea, I guess, should have showed like Ukraine that Russia is serious. Like, and I mean, they would never, but I mean, again, like that's uh, what we discussed off mics, like, you know, why would. Uh, 2019, knowing the whole, you know, tr potential tragedy, like include like NATO in its constitution. It's so, I mean, just uh, reckless in the sense of like, yeah, I mean, let's let's make our goal to to be part of NATO, even though you know that you won't, be, you couldn't just become part of NATO until you have like you know fought like war with Russia or something like this. I think I, I personally think that after the. Ukrainian crisis was impossible to solve anymore mm -hmm. simply because of local Ukraine politics. Any president that would sign any agreement with Russia mm -hmm. that they're sitting in Crimea would be out of office next election. It's just impossible. Like you have to listen to the masses who are clearly nationalist, and whoever would agree to this would be deemed a national traitor, and they would never appear in politics anymore. But I would argue that this is very manipulative because, well, I mean, like they're actually like in terms of Ukrainian nationalists, they're still thirty percent. So, for example, like it's actually interesting that Zelensky was kind of pro. I wouldn't say that he was pro-Russian in the sense of he advocated for any peace with Russia, but his rhetoric was, yeah, we need to solve the problem in Donbass. We need peace yes. and he was Russian-speaking president which was very important um, so I guess he, he he tried to attract a lot of Russian speakers kind of like trying to say hey we're gonna have a peace <laughs> but like you know uh, then it suddenly turned into this very uh, basic but I mean of course they were also weapon deliveries and uh, um, the dynamic is of course uh, I mean you cannot deny that the West is deeply involved into the Cold conflict I mean um, yes. It's a little it's bit, involved. yeah, schizophrenic to say it's not. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I guess um, uh, we will be discussing this topic. Yeah, good place to wrap it up. A lot in the future. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, I guess no one expects anything good. <laughs> I definitely do not. <laughs> yeah, no one does. I guess at this point, no one does. But we will be back definitely. We will. And see you soon. Stay tuned. Bye. Bye.